Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you to those places and those scenes where you have the mastermind meetings and aha moments that can move you closer to your trajectory or at least a little bit closer to your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. As we speak today, I come to you from my purple couch in my sumptuous Las Vegas apartment, uh, known to be in the city known to some as the hottest city in America, particularly today. It's about 110 degrees out. Actually, my kind of weather makes for really good night swimming. At any rate, we are going to have a conversation today with somebody I've been looking to get on the show for a long time, and I'm so glad that our calendars have finally meshed between my producer, his agent, and everybody else. We finally got things aligned. So this is somebody who is uh, very much in demand, and we are especially honored that he's able to take some moments to spend with us today on the topics of backing bold, ambitious startups. Startups are something that fuel my excitement. I was involved in a startup that actually failed, and then later on, it was restarted under a different guise, and it worked out the second time. And I also have a couple clients that I've moved from startup into revenue over the course of the years of my business consulting career through the Business Creators Institute, which is the twin company to my primary venture, the Podcast Reach System. Jonah Medanik is our guest today. He's an engineer by trade and a serial entrepreneur by choice. As the CEO and general part, excuse me, COO and general partner at Forum Ventures, Jonah supports founders on their journey to building world-class companies while occasionally still founding companies of his own. And in addition to supporting over 60 founders a year, he has carved out a niche in the market of teaching founders how to deliver and build pitch decks proven to raise capital. He was even featured on this topic at Collision Con, excuse me, 2022. You can see my palpable excitement about this conversation. I can barely get the words right. A couple personal facts about Jonah. He used to live right here in Las Vegas, where I'm at, but currently he is in a mildly cooler climb in Toronto, Ontario, and he lives with his wife and two children. So Jonah Medanik, come on in. Weather's fine. Thanks so much. Really excited to be here. All right. I read off a piece of your bio, just a piece of it. And that piece alone is so impressive that I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here. And this is my show. (laughs) So I left part of it out because I actually want you to tell us about it in your own words. The first question we ask here before we get into the startup business is tell us a bit in your own words about your journey and something about it that's 
help bring you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, thank you. Uh, excited to be here as well. Um, I would say that one of the biggest things that kind of has helped me get uh, to where I am is I took a lot of chances early on in my career by being a founder and starting companies. And a lot of those chances and choices really didn't turn out that well. And, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, you either win or you learn. And a lot of those, you know, missteps and, and failures and things that could have been done better have shaped what I do today. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to get into the nature of startups. We're going to get into the pitch deck to a degree. This is going to be a bit of a round robin conversation on the overall topic of startups. And I really love this topic, as I said. So first of all, we're going to set some groundwork by measuring the foundation, finding some of the gaps and filling them in. So in your experience, Jonah, what are some of the common pitfalls that you see startups making? I think the biggest one to start off with is, you know, every founder starts off with a unique insight, right? A great idea about yeah. what they want to do or some gap or, or how they want the world to be different. And that's great. But one of the biggest things is kind of the, the source of all later or many later errors is they never actually validate that idea with the market. And it might be that the insight's right, but you know, go, getting out of the building and talking to 50 potential customers or 20 other experts and just going ahead and building can quite often lead to a huge number of mistakes downstream that feel like they're about something different, but are really just about an absence of true independent validation for what you're doing. Right. So tell us a little bit more, if you can, about how we bifurcate between the illusion, impression, or belief that validation has taken place versus some sort of either process or measurable, knowledgeable way of knowing that the measurement is there and this is an idea truly worth testing moving forward with. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways to do it depending on what you're doing. It could be something as simple as throwing up a landing page online and seeing if people will you know, buy a product that may not even exist yet. It could be holding customer interviews. And it's really hard in those situations to not have happy years because as a founder, you truly believe in your idea. But holding yourself to a rigorous standard of you know, hearing the no and hearing the parts you don't want and measuring all of these things and saying, okay, what did I actually hear there? Would they actually buy it? Um, becomes crucially important. And you could just be selling a dream. It doesn't have to exist yet. But what you want to do is validate that the dream you're about to pursue is the same as what people want. Yeah. And I have seen this in startups so many times. And there's this perception because people have seen Sir Richard Branson's book and they say, screw it, let's do it. Let's put it out there. Let's say yes and then figure out how to do it later. And, you know, that's all well and good. And some legendary companies have been started based on that level of leap of faith. However, what also happens is even if the idea is good, is it good for the market you're trying to reach? Are you reaching the market that it's good for? And another question I like to ask is, 
because I myself have found myself in a situation with starting a company. Is this something you really want to do? Yeah, I think those are really, really good insights. I was actually lucky enough to work for uh, Richard Branson at, at Virgin once upon a time. And I think the leap of faith thing is right. I mean, you need to have the conviction to do it. But the second after you leap, what you need to figure out is how do I track my direction towards what people want? It's okay to just jump. But once you jump, what do you do next? Um, so I, I think those are really good insights. And, and there's no one way to do it. But however you're doing it, whether it's you're going to analyze before or make the leap and analyze after, that that core idea of I'm going to validate that I'm building the right thing needs to be a basic part of the process, um, whether it's before or after leap. Right. And there are many ways of testing this. Uh, you can, if you have an existing community, you can try an in-house launch. You can, if you're working on a new list or even your existing list and you're not really sure, you can put up a landing page with some sort of simple offer that they can download just to test, see if anybody buys into this. I had this with an established client once who wanted to launch a program and we, I wasn't really sure how well it was going to go, so we had him set up a webinar. We couldn't get anybody to sign up for the webinar, so it was so based on actual testing of the community he was reaching, we found out he wanted to sell this. He couldn't literally give it away, right? Like I people, think that's an people, amazing yeah, example. people wouldn't accept it for free. So, yeah. I mean, so quite often we'll literally just pull down a list of 100 people and cold email them. And if no one responds, yeah. it's like, well, that's probably not right. Doesn't mean you shouldn't iterate on the message, it doesn't mean you got to give up, but you right. have to keep trying to your point, right? Precisely. Now, the thing is, is a year later he came back and wanted to do the product again, and this time he was told by God that he had to do it. So, <laughs> I said, I said, look, the last time God told you you needed to do it. And we couldn't find a mortal who would even take it for free. So there was no way we were, we were going to sell it. We got to test this again. Oh, and we might want to do some outreach, maybe get some affiliates involved to bring in some new people on the list, get some new things going with so your social media team to reach different platforms, to get new subscribers through a different lead magnet. And we did all those things. And having built that up properly, he ended up selling out. He had a goal for how many he was going to sell, and he sold all of them. So we went from that, God told me to do it, the numbers that tell you that I couldn't even give it away, be damned, I'm going to sell this thing out. Well, yeah, you can believe that, and you also have to, A, figure out how to make that happen, and then, B, take the steps to make it happen. And this is where I see so many startups that just, uh, they get caught up in their dream. I mean, all you have to do is watch shark tank and you can quickly bifurcate between the folks that are actually entrepreneurial minded versus those who have this dream and people just have to believe in it because they believe in it so it's going to work and they're going in front of investors with that mindset and then they wonder why they're not why everybody says i'm out yeah yeah i think that i think that makes a ton of sense i think that's a great way of thinking about it yeah so what was the big, biggest mistake you've made as a founder and what did you gain from it oh uh it's hard to pinpoint just one so i mean Pick i've your done favorite. the whole I, i've done the uh hire the wrong team thing 
uh-huh. um, where we started selling before we were ready. We didn't really know what we were doing. And I was like, sales will solve this when in fact, the underlying product was just bad. And yeah. so we wasted a year and hundreds of thousands of dollars only to realize that it didn't matter how good the salespeople were. We were just selling the wrong thing. Uh-huh. That was a pretty bad one. Um, I've also picked the wrong investing partners. That's pretty terrible because you're kind of trapped in an unhappy marriage that you know you can't get rid of. Right, investing partners, especially. I was in a I was in a joint venture partnership from hell, but that wasn't the same because it's not like they were giving me the money to live off of. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I just wanted to point out that that's actually kind of a big deal when you have, whether it's angel investors or seed investors, you've done a funding round, and people have expectations of return on investment. It's not so easy to say, you know, on second thought, I just don't want to. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's it. And sometimes once you sign the deal, it's like, well, you don't want to, but you're contractually obligated to, so have fun with that. Yeah. So with that in mind, what is something that you wish you knew when you first became a founder? Uh, I think I wish I knew how hard it was. And I also think I wish I knew that so much of it was just going to be the who you brought in to be on the team, the who you brought in to be investors, and that so many of the things you had to thank you solve by yourself are really just a factor of solving with the right partners, someone like yourself, solving with the right employees, solving with the right investors, and that it's not all on you. And in fact, if it if it is all on you, you're probably doing something very wrong. Um, it's hard as a founder to have that mentality, but it's kind of a people above all else sort of mentality now that I uh, think has served me with so much more success than, than the old way. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that does, that does make, some sense. And, you know, one of the things that I discovered being involved in a startup that ended up folding essentially was a combination, almost a perfect storm of some of the things we've already discussed, a belief in the product. And if the product was good, it was just a matter of getting people to believe the product was good with uh, which led to the assumption, oh, anybody hears about this, why why would they not want it? Okay, that's interesting. But, you know, I have businesses and I have stuff that I sell. And just because I offer it doesn't mean they're going to want it. I mean, I could I could make you an offer right here on this podcast right now. That doesn't mean you're going to accept it. You might, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I haven't done that. I haven't done that forensics with you. We haven't had a conversation about uh, what it is. It is your intersection of your brilliance and passion, what you need, uh, what you're looking to accomplish your business, et cetera. See, to bring this down to micro, there's a story I love to tell of a time that I was attending a conference. And the night before the conference, and it was here in Las Vegas, there was this big networking party that happened in the VIP lounge of one of the hotels down on the strip. I really can't remember which one. And I was supposed to meet somebody there who I knew locally because I didn't really know any of the people in the room. So I get there and I found out the other person said, oh, uh, sorry, I know this is last minute, but I can't make it. Gee, thanks. So I'm in, so being that I'm so introverted that uh, they had to make a new place on the left hand of the introvert extrovert, extrovert scale just for me um, in this loud, dark room with pumping music, wall to wall people, and you can't hear conversations over all this. 
I'm looking around, seeing maybe if I'll luck out and I'll see somebody, a familiar face or something. And then barring that, it uh, it didn't happen. So uh, as I'm making a leave, I'm walking past the bar on the way to the door and some random person sitting at the bar taps me on the shore as I'm walking by and he says, hey there, uh, so what do you do? And I turned, I looked him in the eye, I set my jaw firm and I said, what does it freaking matter? I use a different word other than freaking, but, and he laughed. And he said, you know, you raise a really good point. What does it matter what you do until you know what I need? So actually, me, him, and his business partner ended up leaving and going to a lounge and having a conversation. And he referred me to somebody who became a client. All because I made a pretty emphatic rejection of this whole thing of what do you do? And I also determined this at an earlier conference I'd attended back in 2013, you know, we're getting to this, all this thing about exchanging business cards and what do you do and what's your service and what are you selling? And I, I was there with, uh, I, I had a friend of mine there I was hanging out with and I, I made a bet with him that I would go the entire conference. I would make all kinds of connections. I would get clients out of it, but not once would I actually tell anybody what I did. Hmm. Because I wanted to test the theory that if somebody asked me that question, I would immediately turn it around to them. And I would say, if I needed to, it doesn't really matter what I do until I know how I can help you. So I need to know about you. And then I'll be able to tell you if and how what I offer is something that could potentially be a solution for you. Otherwise, we're just having random small talk that's going to go nowhere and we'll exchange business cards and we'll never follow up with each other. And really, what fun is that? Yeah, I agree. Uh, the headline we tell our members all the time is no one cares about your products. They only care about their problem. Yeah. And so I think that that's exactly right. So, you know, I always say most bad salespeople spend 70% of the time talking and most great salespeople spend 70% of the time listening. Uh And so, yeah, it's a partnership, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter what you're building to your point until you know what they need. Right. I have a few questions about this whole startup thing to go a little bit beyond what we discussed in the green room. So uh, if you'll give me some latitude here. Uh, uh, One of them is... You know, what is the impact of company branding on the success of a startup? And I'm going to ask that question very broadly and let you answer that however you feel is appropriate. Yeah, I think branding is crucial, ever more so. So I think in, in the consumer realm, when you're selling to consumers, you know, I think the brand uh, impact is incredibly clear, right? If you think about it, most major consumer products are relatively undifferentiated. So your brand carries like this hugely outsized weight. What's really interesting, though, is that in the enterprise, even if you're selling business business services, that brand advantage is starting to become almost as important there with the consumerization of the enterprise. So I would say that while it's always been like crucially important in business to consumer, it is now almost equally crucially important for selling business to business. All right. How do you define the word brand? Uh, brand to me is what your prospects and customers um, see you as. So it's what they, the image that you are creating on the people you are selling and hope to be selling to. And it's amalgamation of any number of things. That's how I think about it. Um, 
That's a really good question, actually. Yeah, because there's so many different ways we can approach this. Uh, some people, when they think branding, they think color swatch, logo, and those sorts of things. And while there is something to that, and there's science behind logos where you put subliminal design factors into them to create subconscious thoughts, uh, like you know, with FedEx, they have the arrows embedded is just one example. And uh, and with uh, and with like the Wendy's logo, you have the girl with the, the pigtails and the W. Uh, believe it or not, that's supposed to stand for mom. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, it's, you know, it's, it, you know, some of these things are very interesting and, you know, there is something to be said about, they see it, they know it's you. They recognize that color. They recognize that logo. They recognize that font. Or if you're a personal brand, they know your hairstyle. They know your unique smile. They know that hat you wear, uh, whatever, whatever it is, it stands you out from everybody else they see. And I think that that type of, vote you know that type of ocular and vocal recognition is important but i think you said something important that's even more important is your brand is however you're perceived yeah because when even when they see that logo there's you know when you see a ford logo there's a whole lot that's going into that but beyond the colors your experience with the product your perception of the product the pr around it um everything it's it's ultimately how your company makes people feel ultimately what they're going for and you know as you all know that's a multi-channel approach creative yeah. a part of just a part yeah you know uh when i think of ford i think of when i was in college and what i really wanted was a third generation camaro and i saved my money and i bought one and i had to hear from these these idiotic people that would say the name of the song is Mustang Sally. It's not Camaro Camille. You got to get a Mustang if you want to be cool. Really? So I candidly just, I mean, I don't have anything against Fords. And I know a lot of people who like Fords. And I know that they produce some really great products. But I personally don't resonate with that blue oval. Yeah, for years. Yeah, for years, I strictly bought and drove General Motors products. And then in 2014, when I needed to trade in my uh, 2000, or I needed to turn in at the end of the lease, my 2011 Opel Insignia, excuse me, Buick Regal, I took it to a dealership that dealt with both Buicks and Mazdas. The dealer, the sales rep that I was dealing with was actually a friend of mine. And he brought out two Buicks, uh, and there was a Regal, and then there was the, um, I can't remember the name of it, but the, the one that's the really big, the big car. And then just for a test, he brought out a Mazda 6. And when I got in the Mazda, I felt like they designed that car for me. So for the past 10 years, I've driven nothing but Mazdas. Hmm. I, had, uh, I had three sixes in a row. Currently, I have a three, and the reason I have a three is they discontinued the six. Hmm. I just, I just love the vehicle. I, I, I feel that when they designed the cockpit of those vehicles, that they used me as the mold to create the seats. That's how comfortable I feel behind the wheel of those things. I like the way they rev. I like the way uh, I feel the connection between the accelerator and the road when I press on it. 
I like the interior design. I like what they've done with the stereo system. And so when I see that Mazda logo, I I have really good feelings about it. I still have my General Motors products, but I have a different brand that I like right now. Maybe my next lease will be something else. Who knows? But I bring this up because, yeah, it kind of brings two things together. They, you see the visual representation or the or you hear the audible representation, and that gives you certain feelings. Now, whether they're positive feelings or negative feelings is neither a good or bad thing. Those are just the feelings you have. And then you need to match that to an experience or a personal brand. And again, you know, what I love, you said this, is that your brand is whatever your market perceives it as being. So what impacts have you seen naming the company or naming the product have on its ability to attract prospects and make sales? Uh, I think it can have, well, I guess I'll kind of classify this as two two categories. Yeah. Some categories where you're going to throw a lot of money behind it if you're in that unique position where the name matters a little bit less because you actually get to give it meaning. But then there's a lot of other things where, you know, you're not going to have those kind of dollars and naming actually makes a huge difference. You know, if you look at some of the most famous company names in history, they don't mean very much. You know, Nike, because you have so many associations with it because of all the money behind it at this point. Yep. Um, but I think, you know, finding something that resonates for most of us and don't have huge money behind it is going to make a big difference. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, going back to to cars, when you think, when you see Ford, you probably think, Henry Ford or maybe Edsel Ford, but you know, the Ford family, you know, the crazy mechanic who tinkered in his garage and created this, this horse that ran on, on fuel. Uh, when you think of Chevrolet, for example, it's not as well known that there was actually a person named Chevrolet who was involved in creating that brand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, that's the, the yeah. So you, so you have, the, you have that. Uh, you also and people see Chrysler's, although I don't think they sell Chrysler's anymore. Uh, that was the name of the inventor of the brand. So sometimes it's the person's name, and sometimes it's some representation. Like you know, Nike. I I know that means something, but every time I'm called on it, I have to bing the Yahoo out of the Googles to remind myself what it is. But when we hear the name we have an association with the same with Adidas, the same as Reebok and other types of athletic gear manufacturers. So where I'm going with the name is a personal experience I had. Two and a half years ago, I launched a pilot of my program that works with entrepreneurs to launch their podcasts. And I originally called it the podcast reach system because that was the name of the framework that I had designed based on my previous experience working with entrepreneurs to launch podcasts before I made a, a distinct business out of it. And so I found myself in a lot of circular conversations because people had 20 questions about what is a podcast reach system? What does R-E-A-C-H stand for? And it does stand for something. It's an acronym. Uh, so soon as now they're looking at acronyms, we're picking things apart. We're looking for meanings. Now they want to look under the hood and see uh, where all the wires go and how the gears work together. And then they start saying, well, isn't there like another way of doing it? So what occurred to me, because somebody pointed it out, it was a prospect that said that they had two conversations with me and they still didn't understand what it meant. And I mm. said, 
Let me put it in one phrase. We'll launch your podcast fast. I closed the deal. And I renamed the program. It's now called Launch Your Podcast Fast. <laughs> but I didn't throw away Podcast Reach. Podcast Reach is the framework that we use to deliver on Launch Your Podcast Fast. Because, I mean, what, what's a reach system? I mean, I, I know what it means because I designed it. Uh, but Launch Your Podcast Fast, that means something to you. It means you want a podcast, you're going to get it launched fast. So that signifies it's going to take away the worry it's going to take away the trying to figure it out it's going to take away the wondering if and when it's ever going to happen and my entire process is designed to have multiple uh touches uh assurance points uh acceleration points that make the customer feel that even though realistically the process takes about four to six weeks it is in fact moving very fast and they still yeah. don't see all the moving parts until they get the finished product. Yeah, that seems like a great, uh, great thing, great value prop. Yeah. So now let's get into pitch decks because, particularly when it comes to people seeking investment rounds, angel investors, even some private lender to spot them some money. What do we need to know? And I'm going to start generally, generally speaking. What do we need to know about what constitutes a pitch deck that brings in the investors? Yeah, I think the biggest one, and this will really resonate with you, I think, is a great pitch deck tells a story. And it tells a story why you and your team are going to build a business that returns that investor money. Yeah. I think so often we get caught up in the mechanics that we forget that humans are just like so hardwired for a story. Even us, like we're professional investors here. Yeah. But when we're talking about a deal, I think, yes, we're going to dive into the numbers and do all of that. But ultimately, we want to hear the story of like, why is what you're building? Why you? Why this? Why now? Why is that a compelling vision? And so, first and foremost, what story are you telling? And I always tell entrepreneurs, if you can't put in, you know, kind of three minutes, a quick narrative arc that anyone who doesn't know anything about your business can understand about why you're building this and why it's going to be successful, then it's highly unlikely anyone's going to invest. Yeah. Because that's the starting point for everyone is a great support point. Right. Yeah. When I was in MBA school, I took a course uh, that was uh, it was on business problems. And the gist of the course was that every week we would go over a Harvard Business School case study. And there were two professors, uh, one of whom was the type of guy who was really looking forward to the last class of the semester because that's when he'd bring in vodka and would all get drunk. Uh, the other was this super analytical dude. And he was an engineer by background. Uh, he was always thinking in terms of processes, analysis. And so, you know, and I was one of these students that ended up doing this. You know, we give our stock answers and B-school. Uh, we're trying to show we know buzzwords and we can talk about the uh, multivariate synergies of creating a leveraged partnership and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, I watched time and time again as people would give these ponderous presentations like they had learned in their workplaces already. They were supposed to give in the boardroom. And then 
he would cut them off and just wave his hand dismissively. It's like, yeah, yeah, I already know that. And what he was teaching us right. was ultimately to ask everything, to consider everything. There's something I brought up earlier in our conversation. I'm going to circle back to it now. So after going over this whole case study about how to rescue a local car mechanic shop and make it profitable again, after everybody turned in their charts and Venn diagrams and uh, gave their speeches and everything else, he paused the class and he said, he said, we've got 30 MBA students in this room and not one of you thought to ask the owner if she still wanted to be in the business. Hmm. That's interesting. And I've been there as an entrepreneur. I went through three years where I didn't know where I wanted to be when I grew up. When I looked into the future, I saw a blank screen. I didn't know what to market. I didn't have a website up. What kept me going for three years was this podcast we're on right now. Because this podcast, weekly podcast, that meant 52 new conversations, 52 new networking opportunities, 52 opportunities to find a deal, to find a project. And sometimes I was able to do things to test them out and see how I liked it. I'd do a great job, of course. And if I decided I didn't want to do another one, I just wouldn't do another one. But it really helped accelerate my exploration of what I really wanted to give to the entrepreneurial community in terms of my brilliance and my passion. And the funny thing is that the journey led to podcasting itself. Yeah. For three years, for three years, I had a guaranteed source of leads. I had guaranteed opportunities to make deals without having to clear myself and be in any certain business. And for the list I was able to keep and the social media followers I was able to maintain, every week I had a fresh piece of content for them. Like this episode right now, this is this is a fresh piece of content that they're going to get uh, when it comes out. But I was able to deliver on that without having to answer any of the other questions. So this leads me to, as we're putting together these pitch decks and we're looking to tell the story, what exploration process do you go through? What questions do you ask? What framework do you follow to condense your story and condense the value proposition to the investor into uh, how many slides is your recommended deck because i've seen these be like five slides i've seen them be 15 i've seen them be 10 but i've always yeah. seen them be short 10 or less typically. yeah yeah i mean you got to communicate it fast right because you got to remember another thing that the founders always forget is the pitch deck the objective of a pitch deck is not to get an investment. The objective of a pitch deck is to get a meeting. The objective of the meeting is to get the second meeting. The objective of the second meeting is to get and to read the data. Like it's unlikely, you know, even on Shark Tank, which you referenced, knowing a bunch of those sharks, they offer to do the investment on the show, but then there's like a month of due diligence after. It doesn't just happen in one meeting. Right. So when you're thinking of frameworks of what to offer. Well, you first got to ask, like, I need to lead with strength. An investor is busy. They've got lots of people that want their money. What is the strength? Is the strength my experience and know-how in this business? Is the strength that I solve something technically unique? Is the strength that I'm going after a huge market? 
Is the strength that I've gotten a lot of customers very quickly? Is the strength of my team? And build a story is the strength that I'm catching a huge piece of market momentum? Is the strength that there's been this legislative change? So you gotta really think through like, what are the strengths? What are the major changes that you're capturing? And build a story around those. Read with what you're best at. That's what's gonna make the most compelling story. Yeah. And so when you think of Shark Tank, you're in this room with, if I, if memory serves, I believe it's five different sharks. And one of the mistakes I sometimes see the uh, entrepreneurs who go into the Shark Tank make is they're dead set that they want to make a deal with one particular shark. Uh, like I saw an episode where it was either going to be Barbara Corcoran or they were going to walk or it was going to be Kevin O'Leary or nothing. Uh, I saw one where it was definitely not going to be Mark Cuban. And then they were faced with a situation where Mark Cuban was the only one who made him an offer. Right. So another thing I think that folks need to keep in mind is to look at, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, because this is part of my education as well, is that you're going to be seeking investors. You're going to be seeking funding. You're going to be seeking angels. And how much worth it is it to set your sights on one particular investor or you got to have this one or uh, how do yeah. you, or even a larger question, and this will be kind of a follow-up to it. I'll just put up front is how do you narrow down and how do you source who you think are going to be investors that are worth making your pitch to? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So first and foremost, entrepreneurs need to realize fundraising is a numbers game. You know, our data shows that typically your success rate is less than one in 50. So it's awesome to have a target list. And I think, you know, the way you build a target list is look through like who is investing in the space, who do you think can add value, who looks at the world the same way you do. I mean, almost all of these people have online presences at this point. Yep. So, you know, front load your research for sure. Yeah. But also recognize that like, A, the biggest brands aren't necessarily going to offer you the best help. And B, you have to be open to learning how other people can help you as well. Yeah. Because at a one in 50 close rate, if you're successful, the odds of the exact person you want being that one in 50, they're just incredibly low. Yeah. Yeah, so for example, if I was dead set on having you, Jonah, be my investor, I might want to not roll out other possibilities, is what you're saying. Yeah, statistically, yeah. like, you know, Forum sees 3,000 deals to write nine checks here. So even if yours is really good, it just might not be a fit for us. Yeah. Or we might not see the world the same way you do. We passed on really good businesses and the founders uh -huh. said, you know, why? And we're like, we actually think this is a good business. It's just we're already over-concentrated in, say, the real estate sector. So even though we think this is a good business, it just doesn't make sense for us right now. And so sometimes it's, it's just not in your control as an entrepreneur what investors are going to Ultimately, if you need the capital to build a business, then you want to maximize your chance of success. And you maximize your chance of success by you know, building a lot of top of funnel for investment and being flexible as to outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I keep bringing up Shark Tank because it's like the example that so many of our listeners who otherwise don't know a lot about this 
will have at least some familiarity with is that sometimes the deal that they're offered isn't exactly what they're looking for. Like maybe they were looking for a shark to um, invest $200,000 in exchange for 5% of the company. And then the shark that makes the offer says, how about give me 20% for $50,000, but I have the systems in place. I will make you a million. And I've seen people look at that type of offer and say, no, 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 no. I'm not giving up more than 5%. And to me, those are folks who, in many cases, probably have never sought an investor before. Because I can tell you right now that if I were to attract an investor in what I'm doing, and they said they wanted a 20% ownership stake, but they have the systems that could deliver me a million dollars, just off, off the top of my head math, that's a better deal. And plus, I would think I would like an investor maybe to have 20% because they're going to feel more invested in it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And I'm asking you as an investor to either confirm or deny uh, my impressions of this. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I think that's it, right? It's not always going to be... You, you just have to be open-minded to maximize success, right? And also, investors have a different lens than you have. So you got to take it back and like, maybe that makes sense for you. And it's okay if it doesn't. But if you anchor to something and that's not what happens, that doesn't mean that the other outcomes also aren't good or viable. Yeah. I, I do quite often see people who are just, you know, like, it has to be this way. And like, that's... That's not how any partnership works. An investment is a partnership. It has to work for them as well. Yeah, I want to highlight that you said that. An investorship is a partnership, and it needs to work for them as well. Uh, investors are not just looking to throw money around. They're looking to get a return on that. And besides, they want to invest in something that they're going to enjoy investing in. Right. At least everybody I know who's ever invested in the business wants to know that if they get involved in this, whether it's even in alignment with what their own primary business is, they want to feel like this is fun. So let's say I went into the business of selling, uh, I'm going to make up something really simple, of uh, electric-powered vehicles that sell snow cones in Las Vegas during the summer, which I think would be a really hot product i think it would be but i also know locally there's a lot of competition with ice cream trucks and those that sell frozen goods particularly with the kind of summers we get and you used to live here so you know what i'm talking about in terms of our summers yeah. uh now i am going to want an investor who's going to have a childlike state of enthusiasm about when they were a kid and they were playing in the yard and they heard that unique music coming from the ice cream truck and they ran to their mom and asked them for a dollar so they could go get an ice cream cone. Yeah. That and, and someone who can potentially add value, right? Like yeah. by giving you, you know, their experience or their network. Um, and if they're not going to add value, at least stay out of place. Exactly. So as we wrap up here, and we have just a couple minutes, but I want to, and I know you have an incredible gift for our audience, and I want everybody to just hang with us till the end, because what Jonah has asked me to share with you is going to 
blow your mind in terms of the value. I, I've taken a look at this myself. I have the link right here. I'm going to give it out to you folks in just a moment. But let me ask you a question that kind of leads up to that is, you know, we're talking about pitch decks and we've gone into some of the thought process behind seeking investors, branding, how we position, how we identify markets, giving our listeners a lot of starting points for their thought process. Tell me about a pitch deck that just absolutely blew your mind and wowed you. Uh, I just saw one for a company called Road, and they're doing uh, artificial intelligence that helps predict floods and droughts. Uh-huh. And they really just captured so perfectly the story. It was, you know, hey, look, like with climate change and all of this extreme heat and random rainfalls and forest fires, like insurance companies really don't know what their exposure is. And with all these new technologies, we can really fix that. And it was just such a clear problem statement, such a clear capturing of what's out there, such a clear, simple story that even though the product is so incredibly technically complex, I don't really understand the technical complexity. Yep. There's something you could have explained to anyone on the street the value of. And I think those are always the pitch decks that resonate the best. The ones that just simply, you could in 30 seconds explain to a random person why this thing would be valuable. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm ever, if I ever seek investors for the reach system that I'm going to come to you and exp- and uh, get you excited about launching your podcast fast or uh, one of our other ventures within the reach system we're currently developing, which is a list building system for authors. And we're also making a foray. It's funny you mentioned artificial intelligence. I actually can't say anything about this right now about how it's going to look to the end user because we're so early in the development. But the gist of it is, is creating a resource uh, for people to have conversations to discover their reasons for podcasting in a way that's going to make sense for their business and do it through an artificial intelligence application that has acquired learning they will be able to have a free-flowing conversation with them. So when people think mm-hmm. of bots, when people think of chatbots, there's still a lot of programming out there. We remember from a few years ago when it was all the rage to integrate your bot strategy with your Facebook Messenger. And then Facebook came and essentially shut most of that down by taking out all the fun stuff that actually worked for entrepreneurs. Uh, so because uh, you don't hear a whole lot about using bots with your Facebook Messenger anymore because a lot of that either got shut down or watered down so much. But even back in those days, what was sometimes irritating about it is in order to create a conversation with a prospect, you had to map out a complete conversational journey, including pinpoint conditional logic. With artificial intelligence as we have it today, you can have the AI application, you can upload your content to it. Like, let's say you have videos. Let's say you have PDFs, articles. Uh, let's say you have a book manuscript. You can upload it to the artificial intelligence and then just sit back and watch it churn. Sometimes it takes an hour. Sometimes it takes a couple of days. But it will acquire not only your body of knowledge, but also elements of the personality that you inject into your content creation so that the end user will feel like they're having a conversation with you. 
not only is my business getting involved with this a client of mine, and I can't say anything about it at this point because they're going to be first to market on it. We don't, I don't want anything to leak out to their competition. Uh, even aside from the NDA I signed on this, is that um, is that it's going to be something that uh, revolutionizes helping people achieve something in their life that is one of the hottest topics in the self-help coaching industry. Wow. And it's going to allow them to gain this knowledge, whereas previously they would have had to buy 10-hour video courses and watch them. But what this application is doing is it's going to take these videos, and actually it's already done, it's already been processed, and they're currently doing beta testing on it, where because it acquired the videos and the learning from the videos, it's almost like you attended the seminar that that video was recorded off of, and you're asking the question of the guy who was hosting it, and he's giving you an answer. That's how intelligent this stuff is. Yeah, that's that's uh, yeah, really powerful. Yeah, we you know we mentioned slide decks. I know somebody, uh, John Schumacher, who has developed a proprietary artificial intelligence for designing webinar presentations, including the slide decks. So. We may be seeing more of that in your industry as well. But in the meantime, since we are just at the top of the hour here, I want our listeners to picture yourself for a moment, knowing that tomorrow you're going to be meeting with somebody. Maybe it's an angel investor. Maybe it's a business partner you're looking to take things to the next level with. Maybe it's that wise grandmother of yours who loves you so much, but needs return on investment on every dime she's given you going back to childhood when she wanted to know what was in it when she bought you a candy bar. But she has $5 million in the bank and she wants you to be successful and she might be willing to invest 500000 of that with you. Now, I want you to see yourself knowing that by tomorrow, you're going to be meeting with this investor, going to grandma's house or what have you and making your pitch, putting your best foot forward. What would it be like to have Jonah Medanic's system, his complete process for building your pitch deck. Well, the good news is you can have it. I'm going to read off this link. It has a lot of dashes and dots in it and such. So I'm going to read it real slow, but know that you can go to my website, look in the show notes and click. It is HTTPS, et cetera, et cetera, LP, dot forum vc f-o-r-u-m-v-c dot com forward slash pitch hyphen decks hyphen that hyphen raise so lpc excuse me lp dot forum vc dot com forward slash pitch decks that raise with hyphens between each of the words pitch decks that raise and what you're going to find there is winning pitch decks that raise capital And you're going to have the opportunity to download Jonah's guide for pitch decks that raise. Go to the website, download that for yourself. And as a final thought here, Jonah, aside from taking you up on your extremely generous offer, and I'm going to grab it for myself too. What is one piece of advice or one thing you would suggest that our listeners do in about a minute when we end this conversation? 
Uh, well, I do this every morning. I try to figure out the one thing in my business that truly matters that day because it's very easy to get sucked into the never-ending whirlwind of emails and everything mm -hmm. else. Yeah. And it's like, what is that one thing that's really going to move the needle today and really focus on that? Because it's really easy as a founder to, you know, accidentally hide from the things that really matter just by mm -hmm. doing the busy work. Yeah, you know, it's great to have a big project on your plate and know that today's the day you're going to do it. And uh, and by 4.30 in the afternoon, you spent the whole day finding fires to put out. Or you yeah. went to check your social media real quick and three hours into an argument with a complete stranger, this project's still there. You're supposed to spend 30 minutes online just goofing off to limber up your mind, sort of like you stretch before you do a run, but it was all day. So I love your advice. Identify that one thing. See, what I do, I have a practice myself, and you may appreciate this, is well, actually it has a few different pieces of it. I never speak with anybody before 10 a.m. Pacific time. You cannot schedule a call with me. Even if you're a client, you cannot speak with me. I will not do a podcast interview. I will not uh, do a webinar training. I will not attend anything before 10 a.m. I will not interact with a human being before 10 a.m. The only living things who see me before 10 a.m. are my cats. Because right. I need that time to calibrate. And then once we do that, I'm going to do something in my business that shows revenue added to my chart. And that needs to be done before I look at any email, any message, before I interact with my assistants on Skype or anything like that. And the reason is very simple. And I'm going to put it very bluntly. If my whole day goes to shit, it wasn't a wasted day. So just pause with that for half a second and think about that. Knowing that you have a system in place that's so no matter what, you have a day of accomplishment and your day was not wasted. So identify that one thing that's important to you and do it. With that, Jonah, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an honor and believe me, an education. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to this one again myself because I'm going to want to listen to it a second time and take some notes off of it. So thank you again. Thank you. Really appreciate the time. It was, uh, it was fun. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.